if you're not competitive in the marketplace to begin with, you're never going to get into any of these retailers that help you fulfill any of these goals. Welcome to the Food Startups Podcast. You just need the packaging to shout off the shelf. It's a different world when you actually think about adding value. But to be able to play now is definitely going to require some new thinking out there. Hang out with us and learn how to grow your food business. Hey, welcome to episode number 143. This is Matt Aaron, the host of the Food Starbs podcast. Today we have a phenom on the show. What I mean is someone that was successful from a very young age working in top restaurants in Napa Valley in New York, but he realized that there were some limitations and some archaic rules of the restaurant industry, so he switched to the CPG space. And he also focused on finding the white space, which we're going to go into in this episode. But he's very quick. He's a natural-born entrepreneur, but he shares his strategies for running his company and how he comes up with ideas, how he pivots, and running a company pretty much on his own that's already in 4,500 stores right now. His phone number is on the website. He still keeps in touch with the customers. And he has a second company that he is launching this summer. So, I mean, this guy is just, uh, you know, on fire and uh, really fun to talk to, very engaging, and so much to learn from this interview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. He is the founder and CEO of Mikey's Baked Goods and a Lifelong Foodie. His love for food and cooking took root at an early age, and he spent time in the kitchen with his family as a young child. He began working in professional kitchens at the age of 13 and followed his passion to the Culinary Institute of America, or CIA, where he earned his degree in culinary arts management. He went on to work in the kitchen of world-renowned restaurants, including the Three Michelin Star, the French Laundry in Napa Valley, and Eleven Madison Park in New York. In his spare time, he developed a proprietary confectionery manufacturing process and went on to found Creative Confectionery Corporation. It's a candy company that is actually launching this summer. We'll talk more about that. And while he was building that, as a side project, he started Mikey's. He noticed a lack of options for high-quality, tasty paleo bread products in the packed good space. Recognizing this as a white space in the market, he left to create Mikey's brand focusing full-time in financing the business, developing the flagship product, Mikey's Muffins, on his own. Within a year, he had sourced commercial co-packers to manufacture the product and began selling Mikey's Muffins to national retailers. Michael Tyranny, how's it going, man? Good, thank you. It was a very flattering, long-winded introduction, but thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you've done a lot of stuff. I mean, I uh, let's take it even back before my introduction. I mean, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Long Island, New York. Grew up in Long Island. Okay, food at an early age. And how old were you when you went out to Napa Valley? I was, I just turned 18 when I went to the French Laundry. Okay, and what was it like? I mean, I'm going to read a quote from another uh, interview. It's, you know, I had recently turned 18 when I stepped into the kitchen at the French Laundry for the first time. It was tough, especially at that age. I was there for a little over six months as an unpaid intern and averaged over 100 hours a week at the restaurant. Tell us about that experience. So uh, 
during that experience, it was probably the toughest thing I had ever done, uh, possibly even to this day. And it was also the most important thing I've ever done. So whether I'm still working in fine dining or working in, you know, CPG retail food or whatever industry I choose to go to, uh, the work ethic and the standards for pursuit of perfection that you get ingrained in yourself after spending time, especially as the lowest man on the totem pole is, you know, you can't trade that. Uh, you can't buy that. And, um, it was a really important part of my life and something I'm really happy, you know, I, I did and stuck through. It's like boot camp. Uh, so, you know, fine dining is based on a brigade system, which is originally based on a militant, uh, style hierarchy. And so, yeah, it has a lot of those, uh, similarities and parallels to it. Wow. Okay. And and so you're 27 today, correct? That's correct. Okay. And how old were you when you left the, the restaurant space? I was 22. Okay. And why did you decide? 23. 20, 23, right? About the age that most people are graduating Something like college. That. Right? Yeah. And, and why did you decide to, I don't want to say leave because you might come back in the future, right? But why did you decide to, yeah, to, sure. uh, to take off from the, the restaurant space? So, um, I had done the ultra high end fine dining scene twice and I had offers even before going to 11 Madison park to do some hotel restaurant management stuff and, you know, make real money. Uh, all of which I turned down for what I'll con consider a continued education at 11 Madison park. And what I was chasing there was not only knowledge and discipline, but also, you know, the fame and the credibility that goes along with being at an establishment like that. I was drawn to it. Um, and I worked through the kitchen at 11 Madison Park. I worked most of the stations uh, and kind of got to a point where I could see over the wall and the grass wasn't that much greener. Um, and Can you expand on that? Sure. Uh, you know, you come out of college. I don't care what career you want to be. You want to be a doctor. You want to be a chef. You want to be a stockbroker. And you've uh, especially if you spend your entire life thinking about being here, you know, whatever that space is, you build up expectations and you build up unrealistic, typically unrealistic expectations and thoughts of grandeur of what this is going to be like. Um, I mean, I was flipping through the French laundry cookbook, you know, when I was in middle school, drooling over the idea of working for someone like Thomas Keller. Uh, and then I did it. And, you know, reality versus perception are, are sometimes different. And so I kind of got to a point where I was like, look, this is an industry where you are going to work an incredible amount, which isn't an issue. I still work an incredible amount now. And you're going to be very disconnected from the outside world and you're not going to be compensated for it financially. And I had an issue with an industry that is so backwards where if I was a fry cook at Shake Shack, I made more money than a line cook at the three Michelin star number one restaurant in the world, 11 Madison Park. That fundamentally didn't sit with me. And so, you know, you look at it and you go, God, these guys and we're making $35,000 a year living in the outskirts of Manhattan, trying to make ends meet, working 100 hours a week. What are we doing? There's no end game here. 
And so I love the restaurant industry. I love the clout that goes around it. I love the top 100 restaurant scheme and all of that. Uh, and I still enjoy going to these restaurants as a patron. It's probably where I spend any of my expendable income. And now you can afford to eat there. Actually. I wouldn't go that far, but uh, <laughs> uh, it is where most of my expendable income goes because I'm still drawn to the whole allure of it. And, uh, you know, hopefully one day part of this idea was to circumvent the system and come back in on the other side. It's like, well, I'm never going to grow enough. It'd have to be like a one percenter of the restaurant industry to grow enough to be the next Thomas Keller. But if you leave, go make money uh, and then come back, you can come back on the other side and build, you know, whatever you want in the restaurant space. uh, And it's yours. And so that was kind of part of the initial draw out. Uh, It was to eventually come back in. I love it. And put in a very different space. For sure. And it's really cool how you saw you didn't really like the rules of, of I won't say the rules, but just the traditional um how should I say it's the, the traditional you know, the traditions of this like I think it's archaic. Yeah. yeah. I think the way they operate is archaic. And there's people are starting to change that now. And the you know, the earnings disparity between people who worked on the floor and people who worked in the kitchen, both high demand jobs uh, in terms of the amount of effort you need to put in, but was so great that, you know, servers and floor captains lived in Midtown for, you know, at some point, and uh, all of us lived in Spanish Harlem or, you know, other uh, less ideal areas of New York City. And uh, I ended up getting mugged in uh, Spanish Harlem, where I lived at the time on my way to work. And that was, was during kind the of a wake up call. Or, or like yeah, I was 4.45 in the morning. I was on my way to work. People were on their way home from whatever. Uh, and I ended up getting jumped by six guys with a handgun. And I was like, you know what? This doesn't work for me anymore. Uh, this, you know, this life isn't paying dividends in terms of I'm breaking my back for something I love doing. And there's no reward for it, uh, except for, you know, intrinsically what's inside of you. And okay, that's great. That takes you so far, but that doesn't, you know, put you in a safe area or pay the bills or anything like that. So, um, you know, that was part of it. Wow. Okay. So, Okay, so then you leave, and then um, so I guess the, you know the the first idea wasn't Mike, because we were getting too soon, but was the um, was the candy business. And after you, I mean, after you quit the uh, the restaurant scene, did um, was this an idea that you had brewing while you were at the restaurant, or did you just kind of go into a, a creative phase where you came up with this idea? No, so a, I came up with this idea back in two thousand and eight, uh, so summer of two thousand and eight, and. I didn't leave 11 Madison Park until 2012. So I'd been sitting on it for a while and it had been chewing at me on the daily. And so when I left 11 Madison Park, there was a clear path of, I'm going to go try this. And if in eight weeks, I don't have anything brewing, I don't know if it was actually eight weeks. It could have been 10. I forget what metrics I set, but I set a pretty tight timeline that said, if nothing's happening, uh, I can go back to any restaurant in New York City and get a job. It's not a problem. I left 11 Madison on really good terms. At the time, they were at the top of the world. And, you know, going to any restaurant with those two on your resume, you can probably get a job in the kitchen. And so I wasn't really worried about reemployment had I needed it. 
but I wanted to go chase this dream. And so that was a lot of the reason why I and left. And what happened in those eight weeks? Uh, so I built a Rule Goldberg-style piece of equipment in my mom's basement back in Long Island, which uh, was quite messy because candy's not the cleanest thing in the world, and tried to figure out a way to manufacture this unique type of candy that we're launching this summer. So if we get back together over the summer, we can talk all about uh, what the product is and, and you know, uh, the white space we're covering there and how innovative it is. But uh, in those eight weeks, you know, developed this product, made some bench level samples and found some investors to back it. And then, you know, off we went. And I was as green eyed as they come. I thought, you know, we could go take on Kraft Foods or Hershey as, I don't know, I don't know what kind of ideas of grandeur I had, but I was going to go after it. And, um, and so that's how it started. And then I never looked back after that. I mean, that was it. But yeah, but you started growing this. A question for you. I mean, it might be a combination. Do you think? Sure. Okay. You're obviously a natural born entrepreneur, uh, you know, food person. And do you think it was more because of your resume or because of kind of your hustle and your drive and your charisma that you're able to co- convince investors with just an idea? Uh, back when you launched CCC? I think it was the product. I think it was the, you know, I brought this to people and showed it to them and they were tepid about it because I didn't have any experience in the space. And that's a really fair reason to not write somebody a check. But then I took a new strategy, which was to go meet with investors at their house where their kids were. And I gave the product to their kids. And then that was that. Um, and so that's, you know, I can thank all of their kids for the help, uh, to get it off the ground. Wow. It's, it's, you're nothing closer to the heart of an investor than, than his family. And all, all of a sudden his kids saying, I like yep. it. That's gonna, wow. Really smart. Really smart, man. Um, yeah. So the game was, I couldn't meet during the day for whatever reasons I came up with, but I could swing by your house and drop off some samples or some documents at seven, you know, when I knew everyone was home. And then I would drop them off and the kids would go crazy. And then I knew we were So, in a Mike, good place. I think you just gave a great tip. I, I guarantee you there's people listening to it right now. They're like, hmm, I think I'll try that. But, uh, but uh, <laughs> that's great. So, so let me. Uh, Doesn't work for everything, but it definitely works for candy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to be careful like what it is, right? Then it sounds kind of weird. It's like, yeah, exactly. Tonight, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, Mike, I, I, okay. So I think this is. Okay, I love the idea of the white space. You mention it in kind of nonchalantly, but this is this is a big concept, recognizing the white space. And I'm, I'm going to fast forward because listeners, this episode can be found at foodstarvespodcast.com slash Mikey's M-I-K-E-Y-S. And we're just going to have to bring Mike back for the candy thing. So we'll have to, to table that, unfortunately, until um, this summer once it's launched. But I thought it was really interesting to me. You kind of started Mikey's as a way to, to fund CCC. Yeah, it was actually a way to fund my own life. So uh, Creative Confectionery got to a point where we I had tapped out all of our current investors uh, and we had gotten in way over our heads. I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, we needed millions of dollars worth of equipment that was proprietary and not on the market yet. And you couldn't just roll into any co-packer and have them make this for you because it's a completely new candy concept. And so I 
met with the one equipment manufacturer we needed. They needed a 10% deposit down, which is all the money we had left in the account. And as a true entrepreneur, I said, yeah, no, we can pay for this whole thing. Wrote the check, zeroed out the account and figured I would figure out how to get the rest of it paid uh, another day. You know, we got to just keep going towards the goal. And so company was dry. Uh, I needed to figure out a way to raise money to keep it alive. And um, there was no way to pay myself. So I needed to do something. So I started catering back in New York, which was easy for me. Uh, And it was good cash flow. And it allowed me to not have to go back to traditional work so I can still work on CCC. And uh, one thing led to another. And I met this health food store owner in Long Island. And I started making product for their store. And it was very hand to mouth. You know, I bake something, take it, drop it off out of my car, get paid out of the register in cash. And off I went. It was the greatest model ever. (laughs) And uh, at one point, I think I had like 25, 30 items in her stores from, you know, frozen vegan chocolate mousse to hand-rolled gluten-free ice cream cones to ready-to-eat meals to all sorts of bakery goods. So I was taking the products there, uh, selling them directly to the store, getting paid out of the register, which was a great model uh, and allowed me to put some cash in my pocket and not have to go back to traditional work and continue to push after CCC. And, you know, we had this great mix of products and all of a sudden the English muffins came out and uh, they really took off. They have this great blend of attributes um, that separate them you know, back to that white space, really separate them in the marketplace against what is the norm in gluten-free, better-for-you baking, and kind of set a new standard for uh, what was out there. And I recognized how well these were doing in this store, and I kind of hit pause on everything else. I said, there's something here. Let's build up some real packaging, uh, and let's try and take this to market, and let's fulfill that, you know, big CPG retail dream right now while we're still waiting for creative to get everything on that end together. And so I shut down everything in terms of, you know, the 25, 30 items we were doing and went uh, exclusively after building Mikey's muffins, which is what it was at the beginning. Wow. And so because all we had is the English muffins. And yes, you start with the English muffins, right? Your, your flagship product. And I'm guessing you had a different way. I don't think you went to people's house giving kids the the um, the paleo muffins, right? How did you? Uh... Yeah. No, very very different model. <laughs> yeah. So uh, our first investor was a in, or is an investor of Creative Confectionery, so that helped. I already had a relationship with someone, and I said, look, we're selling this stuff direct uh, to retail, and you know it's clean cash. Why don't we just try and build this up? And so. Um, that's how it started. And then we did a friends and family round that dragged out for about a year. Um, and then we got a initial, we'll call it real investment from a, um, a family office in New York City that I was introduced to who actually originally wanted to make an investment in creative. And uh, after kind of going through and doing diligence on both and getting a feel for where we were at. Uh, at the last second, we kind of flipped it around and, and went after Mikey's. And um, that was in October of 2015. And did they, when they, when they invested, they give you advice that like, hey, Mike, you're amazing, but you need to get some people to, on your team to help you with like retail relationships. What did, what are some of the things they told you when they invested? Um, honestly, we didn't build a team for a really long time. <laughs> 
after that. But when you say we, was that just uh, you? So, or? I mean, the investment firm is in New York City. I'm here in Scottsdale, Arizona. I have been for the last three years, uh, even though I grew up in New York and lived there for most of my life. I'm here now. And um, for the longest time, it was just a one-man band. Uh, and then we brought in a, a really seasoned salesperson and uh and then it was a two-man band i mean it's it's been extremely lean uh from the get-go and i kind of like it that way uh, i don't think we need 20 people in a small company i mean i i know um of a couple examples of relatively big companies that operate with an extremely lean staff um and i think that's where some of my experience totally. and, and, you know, work ethic comes into play. Right. Cause it's like the CIA, I'm sure you had to study all different aspects, right. Of, of, of cooking and, and food and, 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 you know, culinary science. Sure. Right. So you basically, you know, you were talking to the coat packer, uh, the packaging designer, uh, you know, the retail store sales, you were doing everything. Yeah. And for the most part, I still am. Um, that's, I don't know. I think that's just how I'm wired to some extent, for better or worse. And, you know, I don't think we're at a point where we need 10 employees, right? I can post everything on Instagram while I'm, you know, sitting in the back of an Uber on the way to the airport or, you know, eating dinner or whatever it is. I don't need to pay somebody to do that. I can take those pictures because I have a food background. Uh, that's pretty easy for me. And so I am still the person who manages our social media, which probably seems, you know, perplexing, but, uh, you know, I also call on major retailers. And so I was in, you know, Cincinnati this week for a major retailer call in Philadelphia and, uh, Boise. And, you know, I'm kind of all over the place in terms of travel and, um, and wearing a, a number of different hats. But I think you have to be because you have to be really cognizant of cash flow uh, at this point in the business, or really at any point in the business. But um, I think there are two ways to start a retail CPG food company or whatever CPG company you want to go after. And I think people make the same mistake over and over again. And that mistake is to go for high margin out of the gun. So they're like, we need to make money day one. And you're never going to get anywhere there. You need to have a plan to profitability. But if you're not competitive in the marketplace to begin with, you're never going to get into any of these retailers that help you fulfill any of these goals. So, you know, our margins day one were single digits and in the teens. And, you know, now we've built them up into the thirties, which is pretty market for frozen bakery. Um, but if I had tried to be in the thirties or forties at the beginning, we wouldn't have gotten in any retailers cause our stuff would have been way too expensive and, uh, we would have just been treading water. And so I needed to be able to build enough cash flow and enough investment to take us to that point. And, uh, you know, part of that is keeping a close eye on, you know, what our overhead, what our GNA expenses are. And one of the big ones for a company that outsources everything else is employees. And so I've purposely kept that off the sheet because I don't think we need it, uh, you know, at our, at our current level. That's great. I mean, yeah. And you have your fingerprints all over the company. You're in over 4,500 stores, running the Instagram, got your phone number on the website. And uh, just out of curiosity, why are you in Scottsdale and not New York? 
Uh, there's a few different reasons for it, but, um, you know, you don't have to shovel sunshine as they say out here. <laughs> I like uh, it. Also, I travel a tremendous amount and trying to, you know, get to JFK, get to Manhattan, find some way of decompressing in between is not conducive there. I mean, I lived in the city for partially most of my whole life. And so, uh, I took a little under 200 flights last year. Um, you could do the math on how many days that is out of pocket. I, I live on a plane really, or in an airport somewhere. I don't really live in Scottsdale or New York or, <laughs> or wherever. Wow. 200 flights. Okay. So very cool, man. I, I, okay. So let me, okay. Let's, you mentioned this, um, but this whole white space thing, tell me if this is uh, accurate. I want to try to describe it myself. So basically, or define, I should say, you kind of, you see something like, man, something's not right here. And this white space is this big opportunity that none of the big brands or maybe even some of the small brands are doing, or if the small brands are doing it, maybe they're not on a large enough scale or their price isn't right, as you mentioned. So you try to find these white spaces. These are the opportunities that, that you, you look for. Yeah. And so I think there's a couple different ways to look at white space. The first is the obvious one that you pointed out, which is in the marketplace, there is, um, you know, a need by consumers are demanding something that doesn't exist. And uh, whether they're demanding it because they know they want it or you know it's coming, like for our stuff, you know, when paleo and CrossFit and a focus towards grain-free and better-for-you ingredients started to come out a couple years ago, we were ahead of that curve by luck more than anything. I don't want to take any sort of undeserved credit for, you know, predicting the future. Uh, but we, our timing was just perfect. And, uh, when those people realized that they still wanted to eat bread in their life, we were there for them. So that's one way to identify white space. The other way <clears throat> that I've seen, which, uh, I find fascinating is companies who identify white space in potential acquirers. So for example, Coca-Cola has a premium water company, smart water, and has a basic water company, Dasani or whatever one they own. Pepsi has a regular water company, but they don't have a premium, well, up until a couple weeks ago, they or months ago, they didn't have a premium water company. So if you're building a bottled water company, you can look at it and say, look, saturated market, but Pepsi doesn't have a premium water company. What if we build a company completely tailored for the acquisition from them? Because we know that they're going to need it. Coke's not going to want them to have it. And you can basically ensue a bidding war. That's a different, much more high level kind of way of thinking about white space, but it's a really cool avenue to say, okay, uh, if our goal here is to be acquired, then why don't we start from the beginning and figure out who we think the one, two, three, five potential acquirers are, and why don't we start tailoring ourselves for them? And I think that's something to focus on if that's your ultimate goal. Wow. Okay. And and Mike, and uh, another thing that we've we touched on before the show, right? Tell us about the problem with, uh, I won't say the problem, but I'll say the, uh, the lack of health benefits or the confusion with some of the main gluten-free breads out there. Sure. <clears throat> so uh, part of the reason I started Mikey's was I started to, you know, in conjunction with working with this health food store, I noticed that a lot of these companies were preaching these great things about health and their marketing, 
Uh, and then you flip the box over, you look at the ingredients or the nutritional panel, and you're like, are you joking me? This isn't, uh, this isn't good for you at all. Uh, and so, you know, we talked about this briefly uh, before the call, but our, you know, there is a food revolution happening around a focus on, you know, better for you foods, macronutrition, clean ingredients. And if you look at where gluten-free started and has landed, it's kind of gone through three revolutions. And the first one was just give me something that tastes as good or better than the box and we'll buy it. And that worked for a while. And then all of the mainstay gluten-free brands today came in after that and said, we're going to make a gluten-free bread that tastes significantly better than the box, but uh, it's not going to have any other attributes or benefits, but your whole family can eat it. And that's great. They built a billion dollar industry on that. um, And it works really well. The problem is now that everyone's shifting towards, okay, what's in my food, uh, you know, what's it made out of and, and what is the nutritional density of it, these guys fall flat on their face. And the reason is because they use, you know, their breads are basically modified starch cocktails. They use all the same preservatives and some fillers that the big box wonder breads of the world use. Uh, and unless you're part of that small microcosm of society that is actually celiac, you're better off eating regular bread than you are this stuff anyway. And so that kind of drove me to say, we can do better. We can give you a nutrient-dense, clean ingredient, baked good at a competitive price point to the gluten-free market. And that's where we found our white space. Um, and, and that's kind of how it started to take off. Yeah, you see this a lot in health and nutrition, Mike, where – they're just oversimplified concepts, gluten-free, right? So people will just look for the gluten-free check and they wouldn't do any further investigation. Sure. But as you mentioned, there's the nutrient density is really, really, really important. Um, there's the whole ancient wheat versus modern wheat. We actually had, uh, you know, the founder of Kamut on the show, which is the Corazon wheat. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting. But another thing you have here, and I don't, I think another term that can be also misconstrued, um, why paleo? So that's a good question. And uh, I want to highlight the fact that we didn't pigeonhole ourselves to one market, right? I didn't call it, you know, paleo caveman muffins. Um, it is an attribute that our product or a benefit that our products have in conjunction with a number of other benefits we have. And so paleo is really hot right now and it goes hand in hand with crossfit which i think is still the fastest growing uh workout lifestyle program on the planet uh, or at least in this country and so um paleo focuses on this whole mantra of you know eating real food true care about the ingredients that go into the foods that go into your body and so For us, it's one more thing that helps separate us in the marketplace. This is, look, we are focused on not only uh, quality ingredients, but a short list of identifiably nutrient-rich ingredients. And we can back that up by having a certified paleo seal, much like we back up the fact that we're certified gluten-free with the gluten-free seal from GIG, these third-party audit companies, um, because it, it... helps validate what we're doing in it and it helps show our separation in the market. I love it. And it's, 
I see this here. So, you know, you're very careful, you know, uh, Mikey's or Mikey's baked goods, right? You're, you're allowing your, your brand to expand, um, as it grows and it's not about a buzzword, right? So I wouldn't even say you're a paleo company because you see some startups that they really go on the buzzwords and there's some problems Mm -hmm. there in the sense that buzzwords come and go maybe five years from now, we won't talk about paleo, but that won't really be a problem for, for your company. Yeah, I mean, we could just remove it from the box, right? And everything stays the same. Or paleo turns into the next gluten-free. And, uh, you know, if you had bet on gluten-free 10 years ago, you would have done pretty well for yourself. But there's 50 other fads, if not 500 other fads in between now and then that if you bet on, you would have fallen on your face. So uh, I wanted to hedge against that and say, look, let's not, you know, put all of our chips in one basket. Let's put our chips in 15 different baskets and help give ourselves some uh, market stability no matter which way it goes. Fantastic. Well, hey, Mike, your um, two final questions for you here. So, um, you know, you're working 100-hour weeks at 18. If you had to calculate, how many hours a week are you working now? Oh, I don't know. It's 24 hours a day. Um, And it's not a bad 24 hours a day. I mean... I know this sounds extremely uh, cheesy and cliche because you hear it all the time of, you know, I don't feel like I'm actually working because I'm working for myself. Uh, yeah, I do feel like I'm working sometimes. Don't get me wrong. You know, when I'm filling out spreadsheets for retailers or whatever it is, that feels like work. But the enjoyment of chasing something, I mean, these brands should become like your children, which I have none of. So let's not hold hold that against me yet that I'm comparing them to a living being. But uh, <laughs> they really are like it's a part of yourself. Like I, I genuinely care about this brand and I care about our consumers. And I'll talk to a consumer possibly while rifling off emails, but on the phone for 20 minutes if they want to tell me about, you know, their kid who has diabetes and which one of our products can they eat? Or, you know, their kids were able to have pizza for the first time and they're seven. Uh, they've never had pizza before, but now that they have our product, uh, they can have that. And that's the stuff that I really love, uh, you know, being around and participating in and it help, you know, helps keep the drive going. Um, that's why if you look at our social media, uh, just about every other post is a fan post because I, uh, appreciate and and want to support the people who support us um because without them you know we've got nothing and so it's really important to me to like showcase what people are doing with our product how they're engaging in it uh how it's you know improving their lifestyle and yeah i mean i'm sure the number is more than 100 to answer your question bluntly but uh it's uh, it's a good hundred. It doesn't feel the same as as you know working a hundred hours in a restaurant. Makes perfect sense, man. And uh, okay, really cool. Um, and and uh, also, what are some books for our listeners that you would recommend for them to read? That's a good question. Um, there are a few good ones. I just read Phil Knight's story uh, called Shoe Dog, which is awesome. Uh, and Shoe Dog. I have Amazing. to say, you know, his uh, the fact that he focuses on the beginning of the formation of Nike, right? They get to like a ten million dollar company ten pages before the book's over, and he's like, "Oh yeah, we did this, this, and this, and now we're a multi billion dollar company." Is the way that book should be written because you read the beginning of it, and anybody who's been on any sort of entrepreneurial, you know, I'm going to start a business path, can relate to so many things in here, uh, which I really loved. Um, what else have I read lately? You know, I've peeled apart 
uh, what's his name? Uh, Tim, uh, Tim Ferriss's new book, Tools of Titans. Um, and it's meant to be pulled apart. It's meant to just jump in and grab an excerpt or two. And there's some really interesting quality uh, stuff in there for all areas of your life, whether it's health and wellness or whether it's entrepreneurial. Um, what else have I read lately that's really good? Barbarians at the Gate is just an amazing story of you know what happens with big M&A. And uh, yeah, I would say if I had to pick one book right now that I'm like pushing on people, it's Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. I just thought that was awesome. Yeah, me too. I uh, it was I actually had the audiobook and I just listened to that. I would just go ahead and walk around and uh, and man, I must have finished that in like two or three days. It was, I couldn't stop listening to it. Yeah, you know what else is great is the uh, and I'm not sure if this is an entrepreneurial study book, but just as much as it's a story of like great perseverance and leadership is the second book of the three part series, The Last Lion on Winston Churchill. Uh, it's a three part book. The first part's his early life, and it's like 800 pages, and I don't know, you're not going to gain a hell of a lot from that. But there's the second one is right through World War II, and it's fascinating. Uh, it's a really good story about an incredible person in history, um, and he was definitely a leader. So there's things you can pull out of there that have value. Wow. Okay. And listeners, we'll link to all of this um, at foodstartupspodcast.com slash Mikey's, M-I-K-E-Y-S. And uh, Mike, if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, you can email me at mtierney, T-I-E-R-N-E-Y, at eatmikeys.com. Fantastic. Well, hey, Mike, so much fun talking with you. And uh, we're definitely going to have to have you back uh, this summer to talk about your pending candy company. Yeah, we'll ship you some samples before we get on the phone so you can uh, sink your teeth in them before we, before we chat again. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, man. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, find us online at foodstartupspodcast.com.